we we understood where they were coming from and we saw an opportunity for us and just kind of kept it internal i, I do i do think that there were a couple brush-ups when we'd see them out that week or whatever at the events that the bowl would host but nothing crazy just guys yapping no dance fights like there was in uh, was that st petersburg when the when the the dance fights broke out with uh southern miss i think 2010? yeah 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 that was my freshman year i want to say that that was organized by the bowl and i don't know how they got people to participate in it but they did i wasn't i was pretty <laughs> stiff that's where we got the titus t yeah. classic dance pictures man well, Titus is like a pro dancer. Like my man could have been in some J Lo videos if he really wanted to. <laughs> yeah, he was good. Welcome into another episode of From the Pink Seats podcast. I'm your host Jacob Lane. That is Matthew McGavick. No Vincent Lacoco tonight. Enjoying the fine beaches of Florida. But we have got a great episode in store for you tonight. We're going to sit down with former Louisville offensive lineman Jake Smith. He played under Coach Strong and Coach Petrino from 2010-2014. Played a little bit in the NFL at the Cincinnati Bengals before jumping into a career uh, that has a little bit of prevalence considering all that's going on the last couple of days with recruiting, name, image, likeness. Uh, Jake works for a local law firm here in Louisville, practicing commercial uh, contracts and working with NIL contracts and all those things, and has a really unique perspective on uh, the name, image, likeness rules, and also has a really unique story and background on name, image, likeness. Uh, There's a great article out there from the Louisville Business First that kind of profiles Jake's uh, football days and talks a little bit about um, kind of his initial feelings about college athletes not being paid. We've got a lot of great stuff in here. We're also going to talk to Jake about his Louisville football career, playing for Coach Strong, playing with Teddy Bridgewater, being a part of that Sugar Bowl team in 2013. Before we bring Jake in, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping stuff here, of course. First off, say that you should follow the podcast if you're not already on Twitter, at Pink Seats Pod. You can subscribe to From the Pink Seats anywhere you get your podcasts from. If you haven't done that, do that now. We've had a jam-packed summer full of great guests. Scott Satterfield, Nick Cardwell, now Jake Smith, Eric Wood. Well, the list goes on and on. A ton of great content. We're going to continue to do that. In fact, I think you're in a little bit while you're listening to this. There's going to be a new episode dropping that I think you're going to want to hear. So make sure you're subscribed. And then give our host a follow on Twitter. You can follow me at JacobLane08. You can follow this guy here that looks a lot like Jake Smith at Matt underscore McGavick. And of course, our, our Vince, uh, Vincent Lacoco, who's out on the beach at Vincent Lacoco. You can follow him there. Check out the state of Louisville.com. Check out uh, the Louisville report of Sports Illustrated. And before we jump in to the show with Jake, I just want to remind you about our partner here on the State of Louisville Podcast Network, the What's Next with Eric Wood podcast, where you can uh, you can find that podcast anywhere you get your shows from. Each week, Eric sits down with a new guest to talk about life, to talk about good habits, to talk about motivation, and making what's next in your life best thing yet. Find that anywhere you get your podcast from. And now, without further ado, let's bring in the man himself, Jake Smith. All right, let's welcome guest Jake Smith, former Louisville offensive lineman now, practices law here in the uh, city of Louisville, much smarter than us uh, dweebs over here <laughs> uh, with that law degree. But Jake, welcome into the show, man. It is an honor to have you on. How are you, buddy? I'm good. I appreciate you all having me today. With the recruiting cycle and everything that's going on right now with Louisville football, we could not have timed this any better for the, for the uh, interview here, talking specifically about NIL and all the things that go into that, and then, of course, Louisville football, because... Um, you know, we're going to talk here in a second about your recruiting class back in 2010, which had a, a ton of big names, but none of those names were the five-star, four-star guys that we're seeing pop over the last couple of days. So it's like a new Louisville football around here, but let's jump right into it. We, we've talked a little bit about in our intro, what you're up to and, and what life looks like for you now, but for the fans who um, maybe haven't kept close tabs on you since you left Louisville and graduated and went on and, uh, you know, retired from football and, and stepped into the law side of things, what you've been up to. So just give the fans a little bit of a synopsis of what the last, what, seven, eight years of your life have looked like since you graduated from Louisville? Yeah, I'll, I'll go chronologically, and I'll just say the list of fans fans who have uh, kept tabs <laughs> on me has got to be pretty short, right? Because I was a, you know, I was an offensive lineman. You're a pretty obscure guy. It's not like I'm getting bum-rushed in the streets or anything. But, right, uh, people, only, people only know offensive linemen when they do bad. Yeah, when you mess up, right? That's when people start to know you. I remember in college, I would I would be out the night after a game, and somebody come up to me and say, "Hey, man, I, I saw you gave up that sack in the second quarter. You, you really ought to get your act <laughs> together for this next game next week." And that's the only time I'd ever get recognized. So uh, that I'll digress, but 
It's I will of, say, though, how many people come up and say, hey, Matt McGavick, how's it going? What's going on in Louisville sports community lately? I mean, you got to get mistaken for Matt every once in a while, at least I'd imagine. Ooh, yeah, yeah man. I'll let you know next time that happens, but uh, <laughs> somehow it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> My football career ended in 2015. I spent a little time with the Bengals. I was really a practice dummy up there and wasn't going to spend a whole lot of time. I had a bunch of injuries by then. And so my, my right knee was, you know, the cartilage in it looked like it'd been through a paper shredder. So I, I wasn't going to keep playing football for too long. So they let me go in 2015, uh, got offered a couple of offensive line graduate assistant jobs, but you know, I really liked business. Didn't want football to define the trajectory of my life moving forward. And I was dating my current wife and she had no interest following me to some remote Midwest city to <laughs> you know, be coaching offensive linemen. So stayed in Louisville, worked a couple jobs until I got uh, into law school here at UofL, worked through law school, got pretty good grades, and then was uh, really fortunate to land on my feet with a really good law firm here in town called Wyatt Tarrant Combs, where I currently practice law and doing all kind of commercial deals, including NIL deals, but mainly commercial real estate. Uh, but yeah, as a transactional lawyer, you try to be versatile and they want you to put together a contract, then you kind of figure it out. So I uh, got married in 2020, got married again in 2021. Same. Okay. Girl. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, had a, we had a COVID delay. So we just had a second wedding with our first the deposit. COVID wedding. And then the actual wedding. <laughs> yeah. The COVID wedding was like 20, 25 people. And then the actual party reception or whatever was uh, kind of our, most of our guest list, but people don't get as excited to go to your second wedding as they do to go to your first <laughs> wedding. So we, uh, so, but yeah, we uh, are living here in Louisville in Crescent Hill and expecting our first baby in August. And congratulations. That brings congratulations. us to, uh, thank you very much. That are we going to get a Jacob to, Jr.? You're going to get a Jacob Jr. out of you? Because my wife, she wouldn't go for the Jacob Jr. I tried. No, uh, you know, I've got a really, really good friend whose name is also Jacob Smith, and uh, he's going to love that he's getting a shout out on this podcast, by the way, <laughs> but I cannot bring myself to name my kid after him. Jacob Smith. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I, I, yeah. I would never I'd never hear the end of it. So, but yeah, that's what I what's what I've been up to. Very nice. And you, you kind of mentioned, even though it's kind of a small part of your day to day activities, you mentioned that uh NIL deals is something you kind of dabble in a little bit. And it's, we talked about recruiting and heading into this episode. And then it, NIL has kind of become a hot button topic recently around here just because of how high profile the recruiting has been. And I think all, almost every single high level D1 athlete has kind of quietly asked themselves or said it out loud, at least in the past 10, 20, 30 years has asked themselves, why aren't we getting paid? I mean, I've seen, I've seen the jersey there. It's got my number in there. It's got it's so-and-so team, but I'm not seeing anything. I mean, you, you've you asked those questions yourself. You've made it known. You didn't think that it was right that the players weren't getting paid. What do you remember about developing those type of feelings in college, and how did you go about expressing them? It always struck me as a major injustice that the NCAA and conferences and universities could make – millions and millions and millions of dollars per year off of athletes. I mean, the example you mm -hmm. use is perfect. You can use my number. Not that anybody's buying my jersey. Mm -hmm. but you can use you can use my number and you make money off of it. I don't get any kind of kickback, even though I'm the one that made this jersey with my number on it commercially valuable. Meanwhile, we're living off of $239 a month and kind of the room and board stipend, which, you know, these days that's not even going to get you too two full tanks of gas. So there's obviously something wrong here, right? It's been the NCAA model for a long time. It's particularly concerning because a lot of the guys I played with came from absolutely nothing, no money, no contacts, no social capital, no business savvy, sending money back home to their parents whenever they have any. And so it really is, is hard to reconcile the fact that all of this money and all of this value is being created in college sports and the value creators are not getting any of it. And, and meanwhile, they're getting degrees, which good degrees, but this also the time where degrees started not being worth as much as they used to be. Mm -hmm. And guys are running up huge medical bills. And so 
I'm, I'm kind of a guy who I thought I was going to make money playing football, didn't care about NIL, but had some pretty big medical issues that once, once uh, the smoke settled, I wasn't going to play football for very much longer after college. And so it would have been nice to at least have a little bit of, of money from NIL, if nothing else, um, just to have a nest egg, but also to get a little bit of business savvy, learn about taxes, mm-hmm. learn that I'm an entity, learn that where, where you create value and where, where money follows value and you're the value creator, that there might be some bad actors, some good actors who are also going to follow the money to you as a value creator because they kind of see it as an opportunity to make some money off of these value creators where I'm probably going to use a lot and I already have used a lot. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of really, really pressing concerns that now you look back and think it's, it's about time. Yeah. And so in that time, I mean, obviously you played from 2010 to 2014. NIL was being talked about much more than probably it was in the 80s or 90s. But at the same time, I mean, I would imagine a lot of coaches probably didn't want to hear it from you. Administrators probably didn't want to hear from you. Obviously, there was people who saw what you got as an athlete and were like, man, I wish I had that life. When in reality, probably not is kind of what it looks like on the outside. So and Matt kind of asked it, but, but who did you kind of talk to about this? I mean, was there coaches that would talk to you and kind of have conversations? Or is this one of those things that you just kind of had to, you know, kind of accept this is the way it is and I just have to fall in line? My outlet was my professors. So I did economics in undergrad. And so this is this really kind of an inherently economic issue. If you had to place it in a bucket, right, whether or not athletes get paid, you're talking about the Sherman Antitrust Act, you're talking about where where should the value go in a capitalist society? I mean, this is an economic problem. And so I was fortunate to, to be in UofL's economic department at that time. And I had a labor economics professor back in 2012, who kind of shared some research with me, really had me drinking the Kool-Aid that, you know, the NCAA is a cartel and all these big yeah. words that I'm just yeah. thinking, whoa, this is pretty intense and I kind of like it. And uh, and so I mean, the NCAA is a cartel. So. Well, yeah, well, there's no question that it's a cartel. I mean, the, <laughs> the courts have um, courts have given two alternative classifications, one being a cartel and the other being a monopsony. And this is the Ninth Circuit. And then the Supreme Court called it a monopsony, basically. Cartels, association of suppliers that have colluded. That's a, that's a, you know, a word that I think we've all heard a lot over the last few years, but colluded to fix the price of the product, college athletics, which we can agree is bad, right? Price yeah. fixing is bad. Yeah. A monopsony is a group of buyers here of the NCAA and its member institutions and the conferences that has complete control over labor, which is the athletes, meaning they can... Uh, suppress wages or another way to say that is not pay athletes as much as they're worth. And under the Sherman antitrust act, there's really no question. um, These things are illegal. And uh, other than in the NCAA context, it just wouldn't be allowed in any other industry. And Brett Kavanaugh in his dissent in the Alston decision back in 2021, really pretty poignantly captures the problems with the NCAA model, but you know, the, my economics professors to answer your original question, go back to it. We're kind of out. It really kind of had me thinking about these issues early. Well, I can efficiently say that I've learned something. I had no idea that a monopsony was even a thing, but I mean, going through your definition of a dad thing, it sounds like the NCAA to a T like just basically having all this labor that they're making money off of and they're not saying anything. But anyways, kind of going back to the NIL front, you know, a lot of people worried that, you know, with the introduction of the NIL and then kind of sprinkle in the one-time transfer rule that it would kind of introduce a new level of anarchy to college athletics. I know a lot of people have kind of used the term wild, wild west is kind of their definition. I mean, to an extent, there's been some like tampering, players demanding, demanding various amounts of NIL money uh, before while they're in the portal or before they even go in the portal or threatening to go in the portal because they're not reaching it, getting a certain amount of NIL money, all things of that nature. How would you describe, I mean, obviously you can't divulge all the information, you know, but how would you describe what you've seen? Have you, have you seen much of any of this, you know, wild, wild West? I'm not typically involved with athletes directly. I think 
that would be a question for some of their agents that are uh, that are representing them. And I, I mean, in the personal decisions, you know, whether to transfer, where to go to follow the money, where am I going to maximize my NIL opportunities? You know, a lot of times I have had conversations with athlete parents, even transfer athletes about NIL deals and the wild, wild West really seems to me um, to come from the hopelessly vague nature of the NIL rules, Mm -hmm. but also the fact Mm -hmm. that you've got 18 year olds and 19 year olds trying to interpret those rules and, and parents who some are in a little better position than others to do it. And so I've, I've heard anecdotally probably all the same things that you all have heard about. I'm going to get more NIL money at Texas A&M. And so Mm -hmm. Texas A&M has a five-star recruits this year. Somehow the first time anybody's ever done that before. Right. I'm not going to throw Texas A&M under the bus, but you know, you you hear these. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, that's, that's all right. I mean, you know, was he going to sue me? Um, (laughs) Do do your worst. Six A&M doesn't care about me. And so, uh, (laughs) but anyways, I think uh, it's just one of those issues where the genie's out of the bottle and there's no putting it back if you're the NCAA. You've changed the rules. The terms of engagement are different. You, you can't really even enforce the rules. The NCAA is a tiny, tiny institution that's going to have to rely on colleges to report uh, what would be considered inducements to enrollment and um, compensation for participation on the part of athletes. And I don't really believe that you can rein it in if you're just the NCAA. I think federal legislation is probably going to be the next logical step here, but getting Congress to agree on anything is (laughs) like pulling teeth. So I I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon either. So we're kind of going to be in this, state of chaos for a while and Mm -hmm. the trick is going to be trying to bring a little bit of order to the chaos and i feel like i've heard this uh argument and debate ad nauseum for the last several months what can we do to help fix this what can we what rule or part of the nil current legislation can we tweak to make it so where it's not so chaotic and it seems like people always have this debate like it's got to get fixed it's got to get fixed it's got to get fixed but people either are unwilling to provide any sort of viable alternate or they have either no idea how to quote unquote fix it what what do you personally think is something i know it's it's kind of hard to come up with an answer like this on the spot but what is something that you think could be done to kind of clean up some of these loose nil and that we're seeing play out in real time well i don't believe that you can walk back the freedom of movement, the, right. the, the transfer rule. I don't think you can walk that back because it's just a guarantee that you're going to get sued over it. If you're a conference, mm-hmm. if you're the NCAA, if you're a university, it'd be diff- difficult to regulate that under the, under the Sherman Antitrust Act, right? Because that, that goes back to the whole reason that we have an eye on the first place. I won't bore anybody with a Actually, no, I, I wanted to pause real quick because I, I know I mean, Jacob, I don't know how familiar you are with the Antitrust Act, but for those who have no idea what that is, just provide a really brief synopsis of what that is, because it's, it's actually pretty interesting. The Antitrust Act basically discourages monopolies and anti-competitive behavior. And so there are various measures that the government and the regulators take to ensure that there are no unreasonable restraints on commerce or restraints on trade. And typically that materializes whenever a company becomes a monopoly or becomes a monopsony or when it, when it uh, discourages people in the marketplace from uh, freely capitalizing on business opportunities. That's kind of a high level overview, but in the context of NIL, the decision that the Supreme Court came down on in 2021 is a Sherman antitrust decision having to do with educational opportunities, not necessarily with NIL itself, but it it all but signaled NIL is going to be legal. Just bring it to court. 
in, especially if you look at Kavanaugh's dissent, which was just a dismantling of the NCAA. And so (laughs) traditionally since the eighties, there's a Supreme court decision that uses the word amateurism as a um, pro-competitive exception to anti-competitive behavior, right? So the NCAA can put unreasonable restraints on trade and they had to admit that they put unreasonable restraints on trade in the way that they operated their business in the name of amateurism. And it was really a weak defense from the start. Supreme Court's not buying it anymore. Ninth Circuit really tore it down uh, back in 2015 with O'Bannon and some of these other decisions, which is why we don't have the NCAA video game anymore. Now, right? for now, it's coming now, back. Now. It's coming back. But listen, man, you're in rare air because you were on one of the last teams to be in that game. I mean, you were there up until uh, what 2014? I think the last game was 2014. So you got you got in it all five years, man. Yeah, I was on the I was on the 2014 game, and so yeah, you know, it's just one of those things where I would have loved for it to go a couple more years because my got a little bit of money out of it. But it was that. <laughs> It was actually a class plaintiff in that lawsuit where everybody got paid for the NCAA games and just neglected to opt in because it went to the wrong email. So I didn't get any mm. money. I had teammates getting <laughs> a couple grand off of their NIL earnings from the NCAA video game. And it was like, man, how did I miss the boat on that? I'm broke, just done with college. But And uh, now, and then in law school, on top of that, man, I mean, you oh, really, really went all in on it. E- extremely broke in law school. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I don't know if that answers your original question about what the Sherman Antitrust Act is, but it, essentially you can't put unreasonable restraints on trade, right? People um, pe- people should be uh, able to access services, access commercial benefits at a reasonable price. And I'm not an antitrust lawyer, but that's just what the case law says is in the context of NIL. And here are the the reasonable compensation is going to be, or the, the reasonable pro-competitive behavior is going to be paying mm-hmm. the athletes. So from the business side, you said you work a lot exclusively on contracts and working with businesses who may be entering an NIL deal. And for me, I work, this has been something I've really been watching much like you, but for different reasons, I work in the advertising and marketing world as a digital advertiser. And so NIL has become a part of what I'm doing, or it's much like influencer marketing. You're paying somebody to kind of advertise or market for you as a spokesperson. Uh, And so from what you're seeing on your side, you know, obviously Matt talked about the wild, wild West, and there's been a lot of people kind of anecdotally, like you said, talking about, well, no business is really going to pay a college kid because there's not going to be any return for them. It's just going to be, you know, trying to be one of the cool businesses or just paying a player to help the university out. But from your end, what are you hearing and seeing from businesses and what their true kind of intention is with NIL? I mean, I would imagine a lot are testing it right now. It's kind of C strategy and how it works. But um, do you kind of get a feeling that this is something that businesses want to see a return on? Or is this more of let's just test it and kind of get a feel of what we can do with it? Advertising. Advertising is, is, you know, it's like any influencer deal. When we first did uh, our first NIL deal at the firm shortly after the the NCAA relaxed its rules on July 1, 2021, we went to legacy intellectual property understanding. We looked at influencer agreements and we made sure when we put together our NIL form that it had these kind of traditional provisions that you're going to see in a, mm-hmm. a sponsorship agreement or an endorsement agreement, which endorsement agreements might be a little different every NIL deal is going to look a little different. You just got to tailor make it to whoever you're representing. And so, I mean, I've seen deals where a guy goes on a podcast for X amount of dollars. And so you have to do a grant of rights to be able to use his name, image, and likeness. And we got to make sure that it's fair for the athlete and it's fair for the business in the sense that you don't want to go uh, on, on a podcast or on the airwaves and, and have your, uh, your intellectual property perpetually available to the mm-hmm. to the entity that you allowed to use it you also don't want anybody to be able to distort your your works right so there are some kind of moral rights issue when you get into artwork there are a lot of unanswered questions as it relates to nfts yeah in particular right i mean moral moral rights basically is just your right to you know not have your original work 
distorted. There's a lot more technical definition of that, but I'll just leave it at that for purposes of the podcast. And just make sure that people aren't signing away their their rights in, a, in an unreasonable way that you wouldn't normally see in kind of an right. influencer or sponsorship agreement. I've also seen agreements where, you know, quarterback gets X amount of dollars worth of barbecue to take 10 offensive linemen every Thursday or whatever before the game. And the business can use pictures of the, of the team and the team gets the free food. Right. And so we got to kind of be able to tailor uh, essentially a mutual license for mm-hmm. intellectual property rights. And so we have this uh, legacy understanding of intellectual property rights. that really kind of informs what has to go into an NIL contract. All right, so here, here's the curveball in all of this, right? So the, the average kind of NIL deal looking at it when we started seeing what it could become was, you know, somebody like a, 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 I'm trying to think of a, a company off the top of my head. I'll use Dano Seasoning, for example, just because that's who I work for, and we've done a deal with Marshawn Ford in the past. But you, you have businesses who want to go out there and, and sign athletes and actually do, you know, really competitive things and try to, you know, be unique in the marketplace. But now you have these collectives, these groups of boosters and business owners and, you know, average Joe fans who are contributing to pay players. How does all of that filter through the legal system? What does it look like on the collective side from your angle? And, and what are you kind of seeing from, you know, obviously the NCAA has kind of come out and said, all right, we, we got to make sure these collectives are not just people pooling money and giving players, we got to actually have some available opportunities for businesses and things like that. So what is the collectives kind of doing to shake up NIL in your opinion? So I've, I've helped set up a collective at another school here in, uh, in the region, public school division one. The purpose of the collective was to connect athletes with iconic charities in the community, Mm -hmm. set it up as a 501 C three. And what that does is, if you do get granted your public charity status, then any donation, even from fans, is going to be tax deductible as a gift. And so as far as the collectives go, the only real rule appears to be no inducements, no um, ill-gotten recruiting gains, no promises contingent on enrollment at a school and uh, you, you can't be one of these kind of faux nonprofit entities. I mean, you've got to be really careful when you're reporting to people that are, um, that are going to be donating when you're raising money. Now it's not a securities issue because you're, you're not raising money for the purpose of profit so much as to benefit another person. So it's not your traditional fundraising considerations, but it is, uh, really kind of a, in the nonprofit space, you got to have a, a really, really experienced nonprofit lawyer to set it up, which, which we do here at Wyatt who helped set up the collective that we worked with. Um, mm-hmm. And he knows a lot more about the tax code and requirements than I do. But the other component is you're probably going to have to set up a partner with one of these uh, software companies that acts as a platform to, an IL deal. So yeah. we, we uh, the collective we worked with, Open Doors. I'm sure you all have heard of Open yep. Doors. Mm-hmm. We negotiated the terms and conditions of every deal. They had what they called a deal opportunity. It would be listed on the platform. The terms and conditions applied generally to every deal. They worked in conjunction with what was on the, what you see on the platform. Shows how much money an athlete's going to get paid. Shows what you have to do to be able to get paid, right. You have to submit some proof to open doors or kind of the administrator of the NIL deal. And then you have to actually do it. Right. And so whatever business is connecting with the, um, with the athlete for the opportunity, there's, there's at least one, maybe two middlemen who facilitate the deal. And there probably should be a degree of separation to make it run. Well, otherwise, I mean, you kind of bypass compliance with university standards because every NIL deal is going to be subject, at least in Kentucky and uh, surrounding states, to review by the university. And so University of Louisville, to the extent that they get reported, looks at every NIL deal. And so if you have a collective, you really should probably work in conjunction with the compliance people Mm -hmm. at the university to ensure we're not. Um, we're not letting anything slip through the cracks. This, this complies with NCAA rules. It's not an inducement for enrollment. It's not payment for participation in an athletic event. 
and it's not impermissibly infringing on the university's intellectual property rights because the university isn't going to want to let people use their logos or famous sayings without there being some sort of licensing agreement between the university and the collective of the university and the athlete. And so there are a lot of considerations that you really need to think through when you're setting up a collective and it, it really is important to have some attorneys involved to uh, make sure you're not doing something illegal. All right. A ton of great stuff here with Jake Smith talking NIL, talking the legal side of name, image, and likeness and, and all that goes into it. Absolutely fascinating stuff. We're going to step aside real quick for a commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some Louisville football and we're going to, we're going to dive into the Charlie strong days. So this is going to be a really interesting perspective. We've talked to a number of Bobby Petrino players over our two and a half years of being in existence, but this is going to be really good to talk about coach strong. So stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to From the Pink Seats. Jake and I are joined by former Louisville offensive lineman Jake Smith, played under Coach Strong from 2010 to 2014, and now works as a lawyer in the local area. And in the previous segment, we have a really insightful segment about name, image, likeness, what kind of goes on behind the scenes in terms of legality. I personally thought it was really interesting to hear kind of the ins and outs of what all really goes into that, because it feels like some of those NIL rules are changing on an hourly basis. But now... Let's talk about football, all right? You were part of Charlie Strong's very first recruiting class in 2010. Had a, a lot of guys who would go on to have big careers like Preston Brown, Brandon Dunn, Josh Bellamy, Kai De La Cruz, Norris Perry. You come in as a two, three-star guy. Tell me what that, that recruiting process was like and what made you want to choose Louisville? Yeah, I was the lowest rated recruit in my class I, that's that's fine to say that uh, <laughs> just uh, threw you under the bus yeah yeah no i was i was a scrub i uh we ran a triple option in high school we went like three and seven when i was in high school so I, yeah i get it totally fine fortunately that wasn't the last say over my career but i mean i was the lowest rated recruit the recruiting class so there's no question so i probably had a little different recruiting experience than most guys that were in my class. We had some dudes, I mean, BJ Butler and I don't know, Deion Rogers was recruited mm-hmm. pretty high. And then we started getting some Miami guys and Charlie had some legacy Florida recruits that ended up, you know, turned out being really good players. Like Preston Brown was one of those guys mm-hmm. that turned out to be a really good player. And uh, Marcus Smith, he's another one ended up being a first round pick, but my recruiting process was probably a little unconventional. I got recruited as kind of a back burner recruit by SEC schools, Alabama, Auburn, Tennessee, Everybody said, if we don't fill our quota, if X5 and four-star recruit don't commit, then we'll, we'll offer you a scholarship. And I got really hot and heavy with Alabama, believe it or not, as kind of one of those guys that they like for some reason. I had a really good camp there and thought, okay, if this five-star and this four-star and this four-star don't commit, I'll probably go have a spot or at least a preferred walk-on spot. And so I went to eight or nine Alabama games, pretty much every home game my mm-hmm. – uh, my senior year, I mean, probably weren't nine of them, but I went to every Alabama home game my senior year in high school. Just really liked it. Uh, got invited to go on an official visit there. About the time I was getting ready to go on my official visit, Mike Groh, uh took the quarterback coach job at Louisville. He was a quality control assistant in Alabama and previously had been an offensive coordinator of Virginia. Most recently, I think he was with the Eagles as their offensive coordinator or something. But he left Alabama, went to Louisville with Charlie and said, we got no offensive lineman. Everybody's about to graduate. We can't recruit anybody. You were on Alabama's board, saw you around here a bunch. You ought to come for a visit. We're going to offer you a scholarship, see how you like it, and we'll kind of pitch you a vision of what we see your career playing out as. And so went on a visit. My mom fell in love with the city. Really loved that Louisville had a uh, law school, believe it or not, which she had some pretty good foresight there. And uh, I was between Louisville and UCF there at the end. Chose Louisville and ended up here and got here on day one and thought, man, I'm really slow and unathletic and not all that smart and pretty uh, pretty much <laughs> primed to be a complete flop. But then just kind of put my head down, got to work and uh, started playing my freshman year somehow and wasn't very good, but we didn't have anybody else and took some licks and learned the hard way and got a lot better throughout my career. 
so you obviously got to play for coach strong for, for three, four years. Um, and obviously proved yourself to be able to get to the spot of starting on the offensive line for three of those years and being like, I, like we tweeted today, one of the most productive and durable centers and, and guards really kind of followed that Eric Wood path almost to a T kind of, of coming in underrated, getting redshirted and then really exploding as you went on. But what was it like for you playing for Charlie strong? What was your experience with the, the man, the coach Charlie strong, because we've heard, so many stories of, of him, but I feel like over the last, I don't know, five or six years, because of the fact that he's been gone for so long now, we've kind of forgotten about those stories and, and people really don't talk much about Charlie strong. So just what was it like playing for him? Charlie's a tough old bird, kind of an old school, no nonsense guy, run you to death. Didn't want to be known as a coach that didn't run his players more than every other coach in the conference. Uh, took a lot of pride in the fact that he came from the SEC. So he wanted to play a physical style football, defense first, conservative on offense, you name it. You, you probably already figured it out when you're watching the games. And uh, really a lot of emphasis on being physical. And so Charlie would have us wrestling at 5 a.m. and Matt drills in the offseason, offensive lineman versus defensive lineman. He'd have us pushing sleds early in the morning. We, we ran a lot more, not just running, not just conditioning, but a lot more just physical activity to intentionally break our bodies down than what, uh, <laughs> than what Bobby would do. I was with Bobby for one year, but uh, dudes love Charlie, kind of a father figure type guy, really, really good guy when you're in close proximity with him and, really mentored a lot of folks when he was there. I, I wouldn't necessarily say he was a player's coach. He's probably more of an author, authoritarian than a kind of like your traditional player's coach. I'll give you autonomy, let you do what you want, but it worked. So I, I, I love the fact that I got to play for Charlie just because I was definitely a kid when I got to Louisville, but he put a little hair on your chest while you're here. So. And you, you said you, you weren't that good as your freshman year, but once you actually stepped onto the field, it didn't take you long to find success on the field. And with so many talented guys that were on the rosters you were on, on the offensive line, how did you end up finding yourself becoming one of the more durable and consistent forces under Charlie Strong? You know, I, I was kind of lucky not to have these acute injuries I, I ended up before my senior year having a really bad ailment that just kind of spiked the trajectory of my career. But it, it was, it was really nothing but dumb luck and genetics that I didn't get hurt all that often. I got to play early out of necessity, improved pretty quickly. I was a pretty smart player. And so my value on the field, especially when I was playing center was more wrapped up in, giving everybody their marching orders than it was physically dominating guys on the other side, which you know, there was some of that too. I, you know, I ended up getting some accolades. I frankly didn't believe I, I deserve. I remember I got named freshman all American. I thought this has got to be the biggest con job of any, <laughs> of any offensive lineman ever come through this place. But uh, you know, as far as durability, it's it just kind of right place, right time. Didn't get, the acute injuries and just was able to start four years all the way through except for one game and uh, was really fortunate in the way it shook out. Had an awesome experience. You could not have set me up for that question any better than just what you <laughs> said right there. Next question. I did not know this about you. Uh, I did not know that you had gotten close to the, the streak of most games played uh, consecutively or started. And then the Sugar Bowl comes, and you don't start that game for uh, – I'm not exactly sure if it was an injury or what happened, but take me back. The Sugar Bowl is coming up. You've got that streak going on, and you find out you're not starting. How, are you pissed? Are you okay? What was the mentality knowing that you all were about to play the biggest games of your career and your, your streak is ending and you're not starting in this game? Well, I had a stomach flu. So I had a what is with Louisville players getting the stomach flu before big games? What is it? The diet? Yeah, like, What's going on, man? Yeah, so I had a 103-degree fever. And, uh, yeah, so the three days before the game, I was on IV and I was in dark rooms and all this other stuff. I didn't practice at all. And the game comes up. I still had a 100 and something. I mean, the day before the game was 103-degree fever. And so I thought, you know, we're probably better off if I don't start this one. I mean, the streak, streak can, you know, it can die today, but – 
if if I feel like I do today, this is the day before the game, then we'd probably be better off starting Cam Joyer, which is what happened. But I felt a lot better. It's kind of interesting because I didn't start, but I played every series in the game except one after the first series. And so it's kind of like, why don't you just put me in for the first series and then let me sit out for the second one so I can get the start streak because I would have because I would have had the I would have had the record for position player for most games started outright had I started that game but I played all of it and so it was kind of a funny almost a little ironic the way it worked out it was almost like I didn't start for the sole purpose of breaking the streak but uh but yeah no it was fine I mean I, I ended up playing a ton it was an awesome environment obviously the biggest game any of us ever played in and I do think it was best for the team that Cam Joyer started at guard instead of me because I was pretty sick. All right, so I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I am going to put you on the spot. Who missed the assignment on John Bostic? Because uh, somebody on the offensive line let that man come through and nearly kill Teddy. Who? Uh, who no, right no, now, no, 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 no. That was, that was the fullback uh, or the H-back that was okay. supposed to get the <laughs> linebacker playing the edge yeah on the on the rollout so that was not an offensive line deal and i i just want to put that rumor to rest today because that was not an <laughs> offensive lineman blown assignment okay I, th- I, that's that was, it was I'm probably really... it was probably nick heiser if i had to guess but <laughs> he's, still in, he's still in town i'm going to his wedding in a few weeks so everybody always <laughs> when, you, when you see the highlights of that that of that game it starts of course with the Terrell Floyd interception but the one highlight that always sticks out is Teddy just getting his bell rung helmet knocked off and that's when right there I felt like Louisville was going to win that game but obviously a lot of things happened in that game you had like I said the Terrell Floyd uh, touchdown uh, pick six on the opening drive you've got the you know a couple of big touchdowns to Damian Copeland Devonte Parker uh, things just really went Louisville's way in a way that like I feel like as a Louisville fan and, and football my entire life, I feel like Louisville's always had to work twice as hard to win football games where other teams make it really easy. But that game felt like Louisville was the one that everything was coming easy to. Take me back to that night. You're on the field and the New Orleans uh, Saints Stadium, Mercedes-Benz Dome. What is that game and that experience like? Like what stands out to you to this day? What stands out is the fact that New Orleans is probably the best venue on the face of the planet to host the football game. The pageantry leading up to the game, the whole week is just awesome. Everybody loves football, just a bunch of Bayou folk, you know, that just love <laughs> ball. I think there was a Saints home game the Sunday we got there. We didn't go to it, but everybody was out on Bourbon Street getting ready to watch the Saints play. And we were uh, we were staying in a really nice hotel. New Orleans is an awesome city, really good food, as you might expect. I really appreciate really good food. And uh, I will say New Orleans is is – it probably the reason I got sick uh, with the <laughs> flu, there were some places that we were going that didn't have the, the most uh, hygienic practices, but I'll, I'll digress. The, uh, the game. Now, itself, you just took one too many tall shooters is what it was. One too it, many shooters that week of, of alcohol, whatever your alcohol choice was. Well, it was, it was hand grenades on bourbon street, <laughs> no, right? No, and I, was, I, was of, I was of the legal drinking age side. So that's right. Know. That's right. We're not doing anything illegal around here. Just no, 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 no. The fact and that so, you were having a good time. Well, yeah, yeah. And so uh, that's probably why I got sick. My immune system was, was down and the, uh, the game itself was incredible. I mean, the atmosphere was great. A lot more Louisville fans there than Florida fans really kind of felt like we deserved to be there by the time the game came and played with a lot of confidence and then just popping pads. I mean, it was, it was what you would hope a football game would be really physical. They had great defense. We, we lined up against some really great defensive tackles and defensive ends that game. I think Dante Fowler was their starting defensive end. He's like third overall pick. Mm-hmm. And then their two defensive tackles were late first round picks. Yeah. Sharif uh, Sh- Floyd, I believe was one of them. Was he not? Yeah. And Dominic Easley was the other one. Yeah. And he's uh, yep. a boss six, a second round guy. And then Matt Elam at, at safety was a first round guy and they just had a stacked defense. And so we were fired up to play them. They might've came down a little, a little deflated and sluggish. They, they may have sleep sleepwalked through the first uh, quarter, but Hey man, we still got the win and got a really good experience out of it. 
Matt, before you jump in, I just want to follow. Did, did it bother you all that the narrative kind of leading up to it? If you, I, I remember very clearly Florida fans were, oh, we don't need this game. Florida doesn't need this game. It's not that big of a deal. If you win, it's not because Florida's not better than it's just because we didn't care. Did that bother you all that they were essentially kind of saying, like, this game doesn't matter to us because we're Florida and you're Louisville? No, no. I mean, it was probably really, I don't know how to say this without sounding. Um, like an SEC homer, but it's kind of it, it kind of well deserved, right? I mean, we had lost to Connecticut, we had lost to Syracuse. They're an SEC team. They really are a game away from the national title. They're number three in the country. They didn't want to be there, right? I mean, that wasn't their expectation of playing the Sugar Bowl. For us, it was an opportunity to raise the profile of the program, and you know, we stringed together a few big bowl game wins. So in the Fiesta Bowl in '91 and the Orange Bowl in '06, we 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 really saw an opportunity to get some momentum going to the next season and to really play some good football. And so we, we understood where they were coming from and we saw an opportunity for us and just kind of kept it internal. I, I do, I do think that there were a couple brush-ups when we'd see them out that week or whatever at the events that the bowl would host, but nothing crazy, just guys yapping. No dance fights like there was in, uh, was that St. Petersburg when the, when the, the dance fights broke out with uh, Southern Miss, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my freshman year. I want to say that that was organized by the bowl, and I don't know how they got people to participate in it, but they did. I wasn't. I was pretty stiff. <laughs> That's where we got the Titus T yeah. classic dance pictures, man. Well, Titus is like a pro dancer. Like my man could have been in some J Lo videos if he really wanted to. <laughs> yeah, he was good. But uh, anyways, uh, as you know, uh, Teddy Bridgewater is one of the more beloved figures in all of Louisville football history. I mean, when you ask a lot of fans, who's your favorite Louisville football player or even Louisville football quarterback, a lot of people will seemingly pick Bridgewater over Lamar Jackson and Jackson won the Heisman. What was it like playing and being around him and kind of building off of that? What's your best Teddy story? Teddy was a typical, hilarious Miami dude, really fun guy to be around. On a, on a more serious note, just kind of exemplified the non-anxious presence that a leader is supposed to have, right? Like people are easier to follow when they don't get rattled and when there's really nothing you could say to them that is going to get them off of their focus. It's really focused, really, uh, really smart guy. And then you get him out of the field. He's just a baller. I mean, it was almost kind of like a, I remember when he first got there, we were doing uh, seven on sevens his first spring because he enrolled early. You could just tell this guy is like a backyard, just gamer. And uh, he really developed from that. He's just kind of got this intangible instinct. I mean, he was obviously very accurate, very smart, but this just, I'm going to take a risk. I mean, it's going to be a calculated risk and it's going to pay off. And that was my favorite thing about him being a quarterback is he's not scared to throw at coverage. And so, we had a lot of big plays because he wasn't scared to make tough throws and make them really accurately. I mean, he's, I think the one that stands out is probably the Cincinnati throw. He made a Damian Copeland and um, 20, whatever, 12, 13. And uh, he's got a 10 other throws that are just would be the highlight reel of any quarterback's career, just because he's such a, a good calculated risk taker, smart player. And uh, kind of, kind of segues into my, my, favorite story about Teddy. There are a few, I mean, I don't have anything that I could share on the air that are like, you know, going to make anybody roll in their seat. But the fact that he claimed he learned how to read coverages from NCAA football is, is the most baffling thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I, frankly, I don't believe it, but uh, maybe he did. <laughs> I mean, he's the kind of guy that probably could have. That's, that's one, one thing about Teddy that is a fond memory of mine. But also, people don't know this, but Teddy was a trash talker. And uh, anytime we went and played people in South Florida, he had some of the most creative insults I think I've ever heard. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to share them on the air, but man, that those are those are my favorite stories about Teddy. But he's like I said, just a typical funny. Miami dude that just was really capable of ragging on folks, especially when we're up by 20 or whatever. 
it's funny you would never expect that out of teddy bridgewater but now no. that you say that i love him even more for it because you got to have that soft side but you also got to be able to talk your shit when you're out there absolutely destroying defenses speaking of talking shit uh, let's talk about Bobby Petrino for a second here. And I don't segue with that because I'm going to tell you, like, I want to hear all of your dirty secrets, but uh, about Bobby Petrino, but I've had multiple guests. Uh, I've done multiple interviews with guys who transitioned from uh, Charlie in 2013 to Bobby in 2014 and the opinions and just the different comments vary player to player on what their experience was like. Overall, it seemed like it was a, a much harder sell to trust Bobby than it was Charlie uh, but from your experience, that 2014 year, uh, obviously it started out really, really good with the win at Miami at home in the ACC opener um, as Louisville transitioned into the conference. But throughout the year, as you know, Will Gardner got hurt, there was you know just get several guys kind of rotating in a quarterback. The year wasn't what it was expected to be. But how hard was that season for you playing for a new coach in your last season? Teddy's gone. You guys do have a ton of talent around, but things just kind of didn't go your way. What was that like for you? It was pretty positive my senior year, believe it or not. We we obviously had a lot of talent on offense that didn't materialize in points and yards. That was really frustrating. But it was just fun kind of knowing this is going to be the last season. And there's really no question, Bobby is an offensive genius, just mm -hmm. a savant, a once-in-a-generation offensive mind. And so the first meeting I was in with Bobby, I thought, this guy really knows what he's talking about. We have the opportunity to win a lot of games, but at the same time, it was difficult for guys to move on from Charlie. Mm -hmm. Charlie did what any reasonable person would do taking the Texas job. And we all, nobody hated him for it. You obviously didn't see anybody jumping in the transfer portal. Cause there wasn't a transfer portal <laughs> to follow him <laughs> though. I, I don't think many would have. And so the, transition was also a lot different in the sense that we moved on from our old strength coach who was kind of like you know this this uh almost jail yard travel hey man you're gonna do five thousand overhead presses until your shoulders fall off and i don't care <laughs> if there's any science behind it but you're gonna do it and so bobby brought in a strength coach that really knew what he was doing and and that's the person you spend the most time with so there were a lot of positives about the transition i mean there were some components of bobby's personality that guys just didn't gel with i, I personally actually gelled with him okay because he was more of a player's coach gave you a little bit more autonomy if you did the right thing you, i was talking about teddy as a guy i could talk trash for the best of him bobby would just ruin your whole psyche with some of the stuff they <laughs> say to you. And uh, uh, which I certainly, it's funny. It's funny you air. say that we had Reggie Bonifant on a couple of months ago and he, the way he phrased it was Bobby would say some things that took a couple of days to heal. Oh, he ruined your life with, uh, <laughs> with some of his comments, but the guy was a genius. I mean, I, I think that the downfall, it's not really any secret was the, uh, the nepotism there. I mean, you only have so many coaching spots and I'm not saying that those won't be great coaches one day, but if everybody's first job is a major power five job, and then you've got the uh, 13 coaching spots or whatever that all have to contribute to these meetings and it makes it really difficult to, to really have a well-oiled machine. And so yeah. I think there were a lot of factors at play. I mean, a lot of it, players can take some ownership too. I mean, we should have been a lot better than we were, but there wasn't really quite the buy-in that there should have been from, from all of us. I think there's some blame to go around. And for me personally, I had a ton of fun. I, I knew the season, I, I was kind of a shell of my old self due to some injury stuff that happened over the summer. I ended up having four surgeries from um, January when Bobby got there until May on my right knee and a staph infection and sepsis, which was kind of mm. pretty oh, crazy. Wow, yeah. Pretty crazy turn of events that, that I, I would say effectively ended my career. So that it, my judgment might be a little clouded just in the sense that it seemed like there was a lot more going on than just football going into that mm -hmm. last year. And by the time the season rolled around, I was just happy to be able to walk and run out yeah. on the field and play in the game yeah. somehow. Let's transition into the last question. We'll get you out of here and let you get back to what's it been like watching Scott Satterfield um, take over as the head coach of the Louisville football program? Obviously, been a little bit of a, a bumpy road they went eight games in his first season they kind of look like they're climbing back out of that pit in the two and ten year 
but then COVID happens. And then, you know, last year you, you have all these games where Louisville looks like they're right there and able to win, but obviously something kind of goes wrong. I know a lot of former players have been vocal that Scott Satterfield is not the guy for the job, but what are your thoughts on Scott Satterfield and what he's done at Louisville and kind of what the future is of Louisville football? I thought it would have been a mistake to fire him after last season. Certainly would have been a mistake. He inherited a program that needed a lot of work. Not really any secret that the cupboard was pretty bare when he got here. They've had a bit of a difficult time recruiting and developing defensive linemen. And I think that's been the difference in the games. Mm -hmm. If you had just a couple more horses up front on the defensive front, I think last year we're more of an eight or nine win team than a six win team. The same thing goes for the year before. We probably won a couple more games, but when he got here, Bobby really didn't do a good job of staffing our team with really good defensive linemen. And so I, th- I think he deserves a chance. He's bringing in some really good recruits. Talent that we're, we won't be able to retain if we go on a, you know, looking forward, if we mm-hmm. change coaches. And so I, I think he's brought a lot of energy to the program. I think the recruiting has brought a lot of energy to the program. I hope it results in more fans. One thing that I'm discouraged with, is the, and you know, I could say this cause I don't really have a dog in the fight is seems like a lot of fans have really kind of given up on the program. If we don't get Brian or uh, if we don't get Jeff Brom, Jeff Brom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that's unfair. It's not a fair shake to Satterfield. I, he's got the potential to be a really good coach. There's just a few pieces that probably need to fall into place. He's got a really explosive offense, typically has a really good offensive line, fast guys on the edge, running backs to get yards. Malik's been great. But we're just a couple of pieces up from me. Back seven last year was great. I, I, I loved our secondary before Cottrell Clark got hurt. Loved our, our linebacking core before Monty Montgomery got hurt. Just need to see some bigger, bigger horses up front on the defensive line. That's the missing piece. And that really is the most important position group on a, on a football field, any game, because if you can't rush the passer, you can't cover for long enough to – to limit the passing game. If you can't plug gaps and take up blockers, your linebackers can't get free to make tackles behind the line of scrimmage. And so we've kind of struggled in that regard. I, I, I do think there's an opportunity for a lot of improvement, but that that seems to me to be the, the most discouraging position group of all the position groups out there. But uh, all that being said, I want, I want Satterfield to do well. I think he will do well. One of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Welcomed a lot of former players uh, to the program, to the facility, and is just a really, really solid dude that everybody seems to like. And I'm not, I'm not particularly surprised by his recruiting success. I don't think it's attributable to NIL stuff. Just talking to a lot of people down at the university, there's kind of this rumor that we're getting this Ruben Owens guy and some of these other high four-star type people coming on campus because of NIL, but. I don't, I don't know that the university has any control. Maybe a coach can say, I've got NIL money that when you get here, you know, maybe you'll get some, but that's just part of being on the team. But there's probably not any inducements on a lot of Kentucky fans on Twitter going <laughs> off about how Louisville's got all this NIL money. And I'm like, well, yeah. yeah and they're we getting, look, Jake, they're giving players planes, man. You know, they got NIL money because they're given planes. Like that's just some of the dumbest stuff I've heard all weekend. It's just unbelievable uh, because of Louisville being good at recruiting for the first time in several years that it's all contributable to NIL. Well, people are out of touch with Gen Z, right? They just want a good photo shoot. And so these guys are getting great photo (laughs) shoots and they're committing. That's kind of what I think is going on. Like they're they're, I can't remember who had this quote, but that's for the purpose of like they're recruiting their Instagram as well. Like that, that generation like loves that kind of thing and live on the, on the internet. Right. And they're, yeah. they're never going to know the hassle or the pain of running out of that pre built up end zone with the big blow up Cardinal like that you oh, got man. to do for so long. They never going to get to see that. <laughs> Your visit Brutal. consisted of taking a picture with a big giant blow up Cardinal, I would imagine. Yeah, it, this place looks a lot better now yeah. than it did when I got here 12 years ago. But Satterfield's great, man. We'll, we'll see how it shakes out. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we give him another year or two and he he we're not, you know, disclosing any new revelation. I mean, God knows you got to perform just to keep your job and I'm sure That's they right. want to get better. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy that, uh, in a time where there's so much turmoil within the athletic department that our, our football coach is really doing a lot of the right things and trying to 
right the ship in a way that we can all live with, right? We won one ball right. games, won one ACC championships, and compete for the playoffs. But um, we're just kind of been in this transition that we got to have some realistic expectations about. And for the love of God, they've got to beat Kentucky at some point, man. You got to go. You're gonna have to go out there and show them, man. You're gonna have to show. What'd you go four zero against Kentucky? Yeah, well, that's my point about defensive linemen. I mean, that's the difference, right? They got hogs yeah. that can play on both fronts. That's right. At Kentucky, I mean, hard to hang with those guys when you can't you can't stuff an offensive lineman. I got to see some violent hands, and we just haven't really seen that against them in particular. That's right. Well, we've got there's some dudes there's some dudes this year, right? You got a couple six foot five, six foot six, three hundred and fifteen, twenty pound Molly Whoppers back there. I think we're going to be in a much better place from a defensive standpoint. Jake Smith, former Louisville offensive lineman, current attorney. Thank you so much for joining the show, man. It has been an absolute pleasure to get to sit down and chat with you. And hopefully, at some point again during the season, we can have you back on to break down some offensive linemen. I mean, that's that's what we live for here is breaking down offensive linemen tape. Yeah, sounds good to me. I'd love to do that. Appreciate you all having me on today.